Welcome to the Data Scientist Podcast with Dr. Stylianos Kabakis. Dr. Kabakis is a data scientist, statistician, and blockchain expert with a mission to educate the public about the wonderful capabilities of technologies like AI, data science, and DLTs. These technologies have the potential to transform the world, the economy, and our lives. However, there is too much misinformation around tech, and so most people are just confused about what is true and what is not. Whether you are a CEO, an entrepreneur, or just an enthusiast, the Data Scientist Podcast helps you separate reality from hype. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Podcast. I'm very happy to have here with us today Kate Dajik from Toronto, Canada. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you today? Yeah, great, thanks. So Kate is a cognitive scientist, and today we're going to talk about topics like artificial intelligence, AI ethics, and human and artificial cognition. Kate, would you like maybe to introduce yourself? Amazing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. I am a cognitive scientist, as you know, from Toronto, Ontario. My background is in cognitive science. I did both of my degrees in the discipline, which is a multidisciplinary field looking at cognition, so the way we think, both naturally, so in humans, in, in biological forms, as well as how we create it or find it in artificial senses. So how to develop artificial intelligence, how to analyze it, apply it in various contexts. I've been working in the field for about eight years now, almost nine. I can't believe how time flies. And I'm excited to talk to you about ethics. It's one of my favorite topics close to my heart as I did want to be a philosopher when I was younger. So it's amazing to see it applied today in both beautiful and a little bit scary conditions. <laughs> amazing. So something I'd like to ask you is, as a cognitive scientist, you know, how similar is your work to more, let's say, data scientists that follow a more traditional path? Interestingly enough, my first degree was in psychology, and I had also done some studies in neuroscience, computational neuroscience. So I took a non-traditional path myself, but there are many people who go into data science from computer science or from statistics. So I would be curious to hear in your experiences and, you know, whether you get along with other experts in the field, you know, there are certain challenges. And I'm also asking this because I know that many people listening to this podcast also want to become data scientists themselves. So hopefully this might also help them give um, the broader picture around these fields, which actually, you know, at some point in history, there used to be like one very big academic field, right? Yes, great point and really great question. First of all, amazing to see another person coming from a non-conventional data science background and succeeding in the field. So I'm so proud of you and so excited to hear more about this. Second, as I'm sure you've come to realize, there is so much overlap in psychology and neuroscience when it comes to data science and especially artificial intelligence design. The very roots of the field come from philosophy and psychology, looking at the way that the human mind is working. Even Turing's work back when he was looking at the cobbler and the child, his influence for developing certain forms of AI, moving forward with Simon and Newell and Minsky, they took their influences or their ideas were birthed from various ideas about human thought it became a foundation for computers, the way they work, the way they operate. And in terms of the data operations in modern day science, statistics, data collection, what is good data on human behavior and how can it be applied in a computational or product development, even a predictive type of model. All of those things are grounded in a lot of the methodology that's taught in research methods in psychology and neuroscience as well. So I always tell people a common misconception is the directionality between AI and comp sci. 
So all computer science is artificial intelligence, but artificial intelligence is not just computer science. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're thinking, I didn't do my first degree in computer science, or I'm just learning how to do it on the side or something like that, that's okay. It's completely okay because there's more to understanding these systems than being able to read and write Python. There's a lot that goes into it beyond a manual representation of a certain technique or aspect you want to represent within a type of code. That's application. Sometimes in design, you need to be able to think more deeply about the theory, the roots, or even take influence from things like uh, action potentials in the brain that influence different things moving down to neural networks, you know? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And what many people ignore is the fact that cognitive science, neuroscience, they're intrinsically linked with machine learning and AI in general. I think with the repopularization of neural networks, we've seen more of that. But I'm also curious to hear whether you're doing any work in product, maybe given your background, it might be easier for you compared to someone who has followed a more traditional path, like done a degree in maths, etc. And what are your thoughts on that? Sorry, can you clarify the question? Yeah, so basically I was wondering whether you do any work on AI products as AI products, not necessarily on the algorithm, because I've here main conversations, that's why I'm asking it, maybe in the last year or so, about, you know, like, MLOps, for example, they're, now this is split and operationalizing machine learning is a different thing. There are a few people talking about how you can see an AI system as a product. And this is not necessarily someone who's a product manager or a data scientist, someone who has an understanding of both the user, maybe from a psychological or UX perspective, but also the underlying system. And I've often noticed that you can have some data scientists who are very good in building these models, but maybe they really miss the big picture. And then there might be other people, whether it's like product or someone who's taking the role of a product owner because there's no one else in a company because it's a startup, whatever, who's trying to communicate the requirements and they're doing a very poor job at it. And, oh, yeah. you know, and it looks probably going <laughs> yeah. to be some role or some people who do this job more than others. Yeah, I was just curious to hear your thoughts uh, on that. Yes, no, that's an excellent question. And thank you for explaining a little bit more in depth because as you were talking, I was like, oh my goodness, I have literally been in that seat. I know exactly what you're talking about. Because in my last role, for example, I was the in-between person where I was using my background, my education to literally design a product that was told to me by higher up executives saying, okay, this is what we imagine we want to see. How can you get us there? Like, okay, cool. I can do this. This is what I do. Designing it out, understanding the algorithms, knowing how to speak engineering, speak computer science, and then also speaking CEOs, stakeholders, the people who are selling your product, being able to understand both of those languages, because essentially there is a lot of terms that are specific to those various domains that you need to be able to converse between, is a challenge sometimes. And it's very important to have people that have the ability to translate business needs to technical engineers. Because there's that disconnect. It's been the case in the past where I've worked with individuals who are in more senior roles who do not understand computer science or what it means to properly vet a system before it can go live or do a debugging process. They're like, why is it taking so long? I'm like, well, do you want it done right? Or do you want it done now? And, and those types of conversations are so important to be able to have. So I feel that there's a big need right now in our job market and in private industry to start making more clear delineations between experience and roles. Because for example, you and I both can be considered technically data scientists. 
We work with data. We are scientists of data in various ways, shapes, and forms. That could be an umbrella term that applies to us both. However, under various roles and various companies, we're performing extremely different duties. And yet people want to continue to call us data scientists. It's 2022. It's about time we start making more specific titles or even portraying better understanding because it's not some foreign concept anymore where it's like, oh, you're the computer person. Like there is eight year olds learning how to code right now. <laughs> Let's start opening up our minds to include potentially more classifications or abilities for people to be considered under different skill sets is my opinion, because quite honestly, it's important to not group everyone in the same boat, but in the same breath, acknowledge that many people have new skills that used to be considered niche. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely agree with all your comments. And what I personally feel is that some of the soft parts of data science have started becoming clearer, like what are the requirements? And maybe this will also become part of the education of a data scientist in the near future. This gets us really to our next stop, which is around AI ethics, something which was not on the horizon until very recently, and now it is. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, where do you see AI, I think, heading towards to? My personal opinion is that I see it becoming more popular. Maybe we'll see some regulation. There are some guidelines by the European Union. But it feels now, to me, it feels a lot like the days before the data protection regulation. So it's like people know something's going to happen, but they don't know what it's going to be. So what's your feeling about this space in the next few years? Amazing question. I am a little bit afraid because there are many people who profit off of a misunderstanding of computer science or almost like a wool over people's eyes. So if people don't understand, quote unquote, basic, a certain technique or tool or computational system could be, potentially, then they could sell it for a higher value or keeping that disambiguity in the situation also enables certain people to feel like they won't lose a job or they won't lose a gig. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is not to say that those people are not talented in their own right to create those types of systems that may be more simplistic in nature. The reason why I'm saying it is because there are large tech corporations who profit off of being mysterious, keeping a lot of their codes, a lot of their system processing behind closed doors. And because of this almost secretive nature, behind a lot of computational systems, operations, and companies, quite frankly. You keep profits high by securing that you are the only person who knows what they are, but you also have a grip and hold on a lot of what is available or accessible through these different types of domains. That being said, these large tech corporations may very well be the people who are considered better to run ethics corporations or boards. This would be potentially quite dangerous for our field, having someone as large or financially stable or with a monopoly over the tech field to have control over what is or is not ethical in a lot of senses, because quite frankly, sorry, they are the people who most often require those types of regulations. We've seen it time and time again, rippling through various forms of technology, various forms of corporate fields where the people with the most money, the conglomerates are the ones who quite frankly need the most monitoring in ethical ways. So I fear the acquisition of an ethical board or the way it's constructed, depending on how it goes. It could be the case that we do end up with a more organization-based 
approach to ethics on the whole, which would potentially be better under certain circumstances if you have enough perspectives, if you have the right people on the board, have the right voices, and ensure that everything's very transparent. Because we do have a transparency problem in technology. I saw a meme actually not too long ago, and it was like computational designers like, oh no, you stole my thing. And then data scientists like, oh yeah, I got that online. And I thought it was really funny because there is a big difference between those jobs. And there's also a big difference between transparency. You know, you can very easily be like, oh, I need a really quick line of code to parse this data set because it's ginormous. So I'm just gonna go online, Google it real quick, pull that, pop it into my Python, you know, translate it, boom, there you go. Versus other things where it's like, absolutely not. You must download this one particular package, use exactly this use call. And then like, it's much more secretive in nature. So we don't really have boundaries. We don't really have transparency and we have selective knowledge, which we're allowed to have under certain shared circumstances. Does that kind of make sense? I guess it does. But what I was wondering was more along the lines of things like, for example, how the regulation, you know, pretty much like GDPR, create the whole new industry around consultants in this area and how that's going to affect large versus big businesses. Like the other day I was discussing with another data scientist and we were like debating whether a new AI ethics regulation, how far it could go, whether it's going to stifle yeah. innovation to the extent that maybe there's going to be some kind of committee that's going to be like, this application is allowed, this is not allowed, this is biased. And I mean, if you're going to measure bias, how do you determine this? Because it's no longer the market that's going to say, oh, you know, you have an algorithm and it's biased, so I'm not going to use it. It's regulation. But in some cases, the market actually can't really function because, for example, if you have a system that decides automatically whether it's going to hire someone or not, like there's no market there, you know, that system is like a gatekeeper, a robot gatekeeper. So do we do in this case, you know? That's a really great point. I almost wonder if it's going to go in the direction of like research ethics and academia. You know, where there are certain conditions or constraints that you must abide by under various circumstances. And being so, if you do follow those criteria, then you would be approved by the ethics board or your application could be approved. But I just don't think that corporations who are benefiting from systems like the one that you mentioned, which could very well be biased and could very easily get out of hand, especially if you're not monitoring the quality of the results or the feedback learning loops on those types of systems, they could be getting rid of really potentially great candidates for a job. I don't think that they're going to buy in to that type of application system, especially with the rate that systems are being bumped out, right? Like so oftentimes a new company is building a new system or applying a new system or applying a different system. And it's just such a quick pace that I almost wonder if the application system may not be the right approach, but maybe mandatory check-ins, like checking up on driver's licenses once you get past a certain age, you know, every few years being vetted or maybe audited or having your paperwork checked through and grant applications is a great expose on what you're doing. Maybe we do something similar where it's just like, oh, ethics approval for the next like three to five years or something. I'm not sure. It's a good question. I really don't know. Yeah, actually, I've never thought about this before, that maybe the ethics committee structure might be carried over to the whole AI ethics area, because it kind of makes sense. You know, it's the same thing with studies like in medicine and social sciences. There's like an ethics committee and obviously the government can't really deal with each and every application. So these are like independent committees. And if something goes wrong, this is when someone can, you know, notify 
whomever the relevant authority might be. So again, I think that's a very interesting thought because I think fundamentally, if AI is moving so fast, like you said, where if the government tries to regulate it, you know, it's going to stifle innovation because how can you regulate against things which do not yet exist? It's very similar in the crypto space, trying to, you know, this is security, this is not a security. And you know, how much should the country regulate? You want to protect people against scams. But then again, if like a country is very blockchain friendly and many companies decide to migrate there, then maybe it's going to get ahead of the curve. So how do you balance all these forces? You know, I think it's essentially the same type of problem here, right? It's very true. And I think that's a really excellent point. I also feel that coming back to a point a little while ago, education needs to change around this subject as well. Because quite honestly, I remember TAing an engineering class where I was going through ethical design. And the thing about ethical design and human factors engineering is that you need to consider the consequences that your product could have on the individual's life. So this could be their thoughts, this could be their physiology, this could be a lot of different things. And in the case of the internet, for example, you know, we've known since 1998 that excessive internet use could lead to depression and anxiety symptoms in people who do not have genetic predisposition. How scary is that? And yet we continued on anyways without any forms of regulations around these different types of accessions in use. We moved more so saying, oh cool, we can exploit human behavior to make this more addictive. That's the way the industry went. And did we think about it at the time? And I say we because I'm a part of the industry, not because I was a part of the innovation at that time. But was it considered? Not really, no. It was very profitable. It was something that was making it cool at the time. And even the way that it was spoken about in popular media was, oh, heck yes, they're using what they know about human behavior to make this app better for us. Meanwhile, there was that dark side of the coin where now we have a plethora of substance dependencies on technological applications, on hardware itself. I wonder now, the people coming into data science from different types of backgrounds, a strictly mathematical, statistical, computational background, are they considering the ramifications of their design? Are you considering what it may do to the people who need to interact with it or who might be shrapnel, like affected by the shrapnel, sorry. Are these things being brought into the discussion when we're creating different forms of algorithms or applying them under different use cases? I didn't know about this, that in 1998 there were studies indicating that the internet can cause depression. But I think it's only until very recently, like you very accurately pointed out, that some people started asking the question, okay, is you know social media good for society? I think it's only in the last few years. Probably COVID also increased the rate of criticism because many people were stuck at home digesting fake news and all that. I actually stopped using Facebook during COVID when I realized how much misinformation there is. It feels like a waste of time, you know. Information is useful, obviously, by the very definition, but the platform and most social media are not, are not that useful for my life. You know, that's what I realized. <laughs> totally makes sense. Oh my goodness. And I'm sorry that your Facebook feed ended up like that. It was a dark time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The whole conversation around the AI ethics, I think a large part of it is going to be around social media. Then, yeah, I think also hiring will probably play a role. But I guess it remains to be seen how, how it's going to evolve 100%. Yeah. There's benefits on both sides. It's very much a gradient scale, right? So when we look at social media, for example, there's a lot of good that has come out of it. There's a lot of not so good things that have come out of it too and everything in between, right? So it may be the case that we start looking at embracing it as a part of our lives as opposed to this 
toy or tool that we use sometimes because it's getting to a place in our culture and society where you almost need social media in some way, shape or form in order to exist. A lot of people need it for their jobs, like you and I both are on LinkedIn. There's different types of things to exist within our culture that are almost mandatory now. So it's getting past the point of just put your phone down, don't use Instagram today, to, okay, so this is a part of your life now. How are you going to manage it? Kind of like leaning into the skid. So if it's gonna be there, how can we do it right? And how can we manage it in a way that's beneficial to the people as opposed to detrimental or exploitative, you know? But I think this is what happened with AI as well, right? So I think AI will become more integrated into our lives. So for example, what many people don't realize is that they've lost the ability to read the map because of Google Maps or Apple Maps or CityMapper or whatever. So that's an example of AI getting integrated into our lives. And probably that's gonna, we're going to experience this more and more often. I think uh, content walls like on Google News, Facebook, etc., is another example. But I guess at least maybe people are becoming more and more aware of bubble effect that this can cause. And maybe in the near future, we're going to experience more of it. I don't know, maybe in translation across languages. But I guess that the most important subject is when this happens within a business level, you know, within the unit of a business, and then businesses start hiring in this manner, they start doing all kinds of things using AI. This is where we might really need an AI ethics framework. This is where things can really go wrong. It's a bit like the hedge fund industry and algorithmic trading, where there had been a few cases of like flash crashes and whatnot. Excellent point. And as far as hiring goes, like you brought it up and it's an excellent point. It's been a problem space for a long time. You know, we've seen it go a lot of different directions that are not always inclusive, that are not always right or fair or done the way that they ethically should be by human hands, let alone now machine hands as well. It's a tricky space. I'll be the first one to tell you that I don't want a job because I'm a girl. I don't want you to hire me because I was born with two X chromosomes and I identify with my sexual gender identity. I want you to hire me because I'm good and I'm good at what I do and I have the right experience and I'm the perfect person for the job, if that's the case. And it's a very interesting space to be in right now when we talk about hiring, because what are the features and variables being used to either differentiate us to show off our skills and talents? What are the right keywords in those searches? How are those being put into clusters? How are they being put into high frequency recency ratios? Are there values associated with certain words that we don't know about that may sway by 0.04% whether or not our resume gets through to the right person? I don't know. And those are all questions that need to be asked by someone who has the wherewithal to ask them. A big issue I think that there may be is a lot of people designing these algorithms don't necessarily consider the ways that that data can very quickly get skewed or those learning algorithms can very quickly get swayed by the volume of applications and what those features may look like for the vast majority. Because that does sway algorithms a lot of the time. If you're not watching and monitoring them, constantly debugging, putting up little flags for yourself to check how it's being processed, what's being parsed and considered important by the system, you may end up with a very biased machine very quickly that's going off of a feature you did not anticipate before going into it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think there are quite a few examples of this, of how they can bias algorithms. Again, I mean, algorithms themselves are not biased. I guess that's the side effect of the training process pretty mm -hmm. much every time, right? Or like biases that exist in human nature. But anyway, yeah, I think that was a very good conversation. We have to finish soon. But yeah, thank you very much. Where people can learn more about you. Like yeah, oh, no, that was a great chat. Like, do you have any personal website or LinkedIn if someone wants to reach out to you? Absolutely. Always welcome. You can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Kate Dudzik, D-U-D-Z-I-K. Or on my website, it's cognitivekate.com, which is also linked through my LinkedIn if you forget that one. There's a bit of alliteration there. So <laughs> thank you so much for having me today. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, likewise, Kate. Thank you. And thanks everyone for being here with us today. Make sure to check out thedatascientist.com for more content around AI, data science, and blockchain. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Make sure to visit thedatascientist.com for more content about data science, AI, and blockchain.